Hey everybody, Victor here. This is a shorter version of the full episode that I posted last night in which I continue my conversation with Ian about the Get Back Peter Jackson Beatles documentary, now available on Disney+. This is just a pretty long excerpt, about half the episode, but if you want to hear the entire thing, follow us on Spotify, where you can hear the entire musical tracks that we've included as well. And there's a whole additional segment where we do some deep dives into some lesser-known Beatles songs. Enjoy this preview, and make sure you follow us on Spotify if you want to hear the entire episode. And uh, there will be more music-themed episodes, and Spotify is the best way to hear those episodes since they will include the full tracks. Enjoy. Uh, would you like to see them back again? Yes, very much. You would. Yes. You really like their music. Yes, great. Have you a favorite amongst the Beatles? Um, I think Ringo. We don't disapprove of them. Well, I don't disapprove of the Beatles there. I don't disapprove of their style at all. Wouldn't mind your daughter going out with the Beatles. Well, mine, no, because they've got money. I just finished episode three of, of Get Back just last night. And for me, I thought the third episode was the weakest, which is funny because I think it might have been intentional in some ways that the first thing that really irritated me was the whole conversation with trying to get Paul to go on the roof. You know how he's just trying to drag his feet. He doesn't want to do it. Wants to know, like, what is this about? Are we making an album? And I, it really makes me wonder, am I overthinking this or is Peter Jackson like some kind of psychological genius or something? Because when Paul just keeps dragging his feet and dragging his feet, I'm like, uh, man, come on, just suck it up and get up there and record. And I'm so annoyed while I'm watching that part of the episode. And then they get on the roof and they play three or four songs. And then they start playing the same songs over again until they get shut down. Like when they started playing the same tracks again, I'm like, I don't want to hear this again. you know. And I'm like, wait a second, they were not ready to do this. So I'm like, Paul was right. I was annoyed with him earlier, (laughs) but Paul was probably right. So I think he kind of gives everybody their due in there, in that, in that moment. Uh, that in the end, you know, Paul was like, what, what are we doing here? The project is we're making this album. And in the end, it's like Paul was actually correct about all that because the album survives. And uh, that rooftop concert, other than like its reputation, maybe wasn't they weren't quite ready for prime time. But yeah, so I, I just thought the experience of watching it was was funny. And also getting all those conversations with people on the street. I thought that was really cool that you see like these old grannies being like, oh, I love the Beatles, you know, and then yeah. you have those angry like shop owners that are like, I don't like hearing that music. Go turn them, go, go shut them down. You know, so because yeah, everyone went out, went out onto the sidewalk and instead of staying in the store. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, no, I, I I kind of agree on some points there. The thing with Paul that was at that juncture was most kind of a little bit grating to me. It was like, man, this is kind of your idea. <laughs> like, you were the you were the spearhead this whole time up until now. Yes. Now you're yes. getting now you're gonna be a wet blanket. All right. But yeah, I get it. Because it was we're at like what plan F or something at this point. <laughs> right. Supposed to be a TV series and you know, a concert tie-in and this, that, the other thing, all through these, you know, what, three weeks or so. And then it's gonna be a movie in the movie theaters. Funnily enough, though, they ended up using a couple of when they got kind of rolling and warmed up on the rooftop yeah. concert. Some of those were the best takes that they did of particular songs. They're on the album, which I wasn't aware of that. You yeah, know. me neither. Nope. I've got a
they were like you know com recorded live so that that was really kind of neat um and you can see them warming up to that as yeah. they were up there i mean they probably hadn't just even stood in that configuration in a couple of years at that point right. you know what i mean um just doing studio stuff and overdubbing and as they're working on this they're all just kind of sitting sitting down and facing each other and stuff so it didn't have i think you could see them kind of like rekindle their love of performing even right. though they're looking at nobody basically <laughs> you know they have yep. michael Lindsay hogg or whomever um was running point on that got people posted up on some adjacent rooftops yep. and uh looks like they had a, a helicopter as well for some of the overhead stuff that was interesting because it, it comes down to their last public performance yes. yet nobody can see them <laughs> right they can't see anybody yep. Yep. except you know um a few people in the foreground and then there's you know people behind them on, on the wings kind of on the on the roof it was weird because, you know, not knowing and just seeing that footage, like, growing up, whatever, you kind of think it was more impressive than it really right. was. You know what I mean? Right. And then, because you don't, you're not thinking through, like, okay, the logistics of such a thing that they don't have, they didn't set up bleachers, like, on a roof across the, the road, you know what I mean? Right. Just going back, the vibe definitely changed as soon as they got into their own studio. Yep. And setting that up at first was a little bit of a challenge, right? And <laughs> right. Kind of glossed over, but um, one of the stranger characters in the Apple uh, core, core universe, uh, Magic Alex, mm -hmm. who apparently presented himself as like some sort of electronics wizard and <laughs> yes. you know, inventing new technologies and it all, none of it worked like at right. all. Well, that's right, because you're just you just caught up on that second episode. You're absolutely correct. He goes and sets up this wizard studio that has all this buzz and noise on it and everything, and they have to throw everything out and rebuild it over the weekend. What I wanted to ask you about that, if you have any context for it, was he apparently had done some wizardry for them in the past, right? Yeah. I mean, he had worked with them, I guess, from 65 to 69 and had done some weird sound design type stuff putting like the recorder yeah. inside like a wooden box you know kind of neat stuff he he just parlayed that into being like oh yeah i'm also like I'll build your whole studio for you <laughs> yeah and he, <laughs> i just think that was kind of the level yeah complications that arose when they they made this right. company this broader based company right and you have this guy and he's you know, somewhat talented, probably charismatic, but just got himself way in over his head. The Beatles not really caring about like due diligence or anything like that, or just like, oh, this guy's cool, man. Like I had a great time like tripping with him that one time. And he showed me like, you know, an oscilloscope or something like that. And uh, he's good. Going back to that second episode, like you mentioned, and then how they basically have to bring in the EMI equipment, uh, you know, and then they kind of have to do the whole thing over a weekend after they, you know, that that ad hoc studio didn't work out. What I find so interesting there is we're so used to, in my modern context of thinking all these state-of-the-art studios, you know, you throw so much money at getting some teenager to maybe have a hot song or something now that basically music has become such a product in our contemporary times that it's shocking. It's utterly shocking that these guys, I forgot what the number was, but I read somewhere at some point that at their peak, 
they were like 10% of like the UK's GDP or something. There was this massive money making machine. And they're like, maybe EMI will send us that equipment. Like they had to, you know, like it, it's like, they're still doing everything like on the cheap and don't get me wrong. They can get that show done the desert or something if they wanted to, but it's like, there's somebody, there's a bean counter out there. If we give you this money, you got to make us a TV show or what like nowadays, like if ABBA gets back together, like they did, they uh, motion captured their bodies to, and they're building a stadium to like do 3D projections of them. Yeah. Holograms of them for all of the, the next hundred years. Like it's like they're building a whole Las Vegas <laughs> around them. They're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And like the Beatles are like, can we get some studio equipment? They're like, all right, we'll try to get it to you as soon as we can. <laughs> it's crazy. That was one of the things kind of like throughout the whole thing that I was like, these guys aren't that good of an actor. You know what I mean? Like, or, and also, unless they were like trying to like downplay some conflict, they weren't really changing much right. of how they, sure. their attitude, I think, for the camera. You know, you contrast that to today and everyone's got yeah. like a media, media training. It was uncharted waters though, right? Like, you know, you don't have this kind yeah. of, uh, when did Dylan's movie come out? Don't look back. When did that come out? Was that beef? That's beef. That's 65. Is that 65? Yeah, that's before. So that's before this, but that's kind of a precedent for this kind of like, you know, supposed candid, you know, which, yeah. which I mean, Dylan's was probably a lot of bullshit. And, and to, to that point, like you said, there's probably some artifice to what they're presenting here, right? They're probably on their best behavior, right? Like, yeah. he's not showing up like high on, although I do think he was on hallucinogens at some point in that first episode. But I think in yeah. general, he's probably not, they're not probably having mushrooms right before they show up in the studio normally. <laughs> yeah. But just a notable lack of like diva behavior where it's like, yeah. oh, why don't, why don't we have the eight track here you know it's more like well they should get us an eight track they did it for the, yeah. the beach boys oh yeah. but they're an american group exactly. you know right. so it was kind of cool is like they're still somewhat grounded people throughout which is you know kind of amazing just thinking about about it in its entirety i'm going back to episode episode two quite a bit here because sure. i think i really think kind of the last half of episode two and the first half of episode three are like a better self-contained episode and then the concert is just that's like almost chapter four yeah. the, the way i think about it now yeah but you have them just really gaining steam i think getting back to a comfortable more studio setting without this vaulted ceilings billy preston's yeah. involvement is great just to see, yeah. so awesome one of my favorite parts was when george came in i think this was his second or third day back he has uh for you for you blue which is kind of like piano-driven bluesy song. Mm -hmm. He's asking Billy Preston, like, oh, what's this chord mm -hmm. now that yep. I'm able to add, yep. you know, this, uh, it's a, no, that's an F sus or something like that, dominant major, who knows. But he's like, oh, that's great. You can't do that can't on do guitar. That guitar. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I also thought in that, like, and then Paul walks in, and he, he was, like, really digging that song, yeah. which was, like, one of the cooler, like positive, most positive interactions they seem to have just like organically. It's interesting that they pussyfoot around George. And, you know, it's so easy. Once again, one the things that I find very interesting in this whole documentary is busting some of those mythologies. So you see them making fun of it where it's like, you know, uh, George Harrison stormed out. Lennon punched him in the face or whatever. And they're like making fun of like reading the headlines the next day. This is an episode two, actually. So you see mm. all this baloney about like his marriage breaking up and everything where, you know, he was going through a divorce. 
Yoko was going through a divorce. That was all happening, but that media is blowing it all out of proportion. So it, it's funny to see them commenting on it in real time. And the, sh- the movie itself is busting these myths while it does it. And one of them, like you mentioned, that I think is interesting is this like George is the like ne'er-do-well that the that's always being shunted away by George and uh, John and their relationship, which is probably true. There's truth in that, you know, once again, about the selectivity of what you show in this documentary, George is very much saying like, hey, maybe I just need to go out and take all this music I have and put it out myself, right? Instead of selling it to other people. So it's him gaining his own confidence, but it's also uh, John uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg or whatever calls it out saying, and uh, George Martin also calls it out, saying that George is like his own thing. It's like, you know, there's John and Paul, and then there's George. George is writing his own songs. He's so, a team of one, yeah. He's a team of one, right. And that might be, partially, it might be that he's on the outside looking in, but I think there's also is the fact that he probably is, like at home with his own studio. He's, they're borrowing his equipment to literally record this thing, right? And he's recording at home, and obviously recording a lot of music, because that first album is a triple album. Plus, he gives songs away to other people. <laughs> he has a lot of music. Oh, yeah. Seeing how that kind of, that dynamic moved forward was really interesting. And it, it is funny. It's like, oh, yeah, so George had these pieces of equipment that yeah. he'll be able to bring in. It's like, I thought... He has yeah. better equipment than Abbey Road. Like, what's happening? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The other, uh, like, cool George moment, kind of on the other side, which also goes to show, like, how cool Ringo is, when Ringo comes in and starts playing Octopus's Garden, Garden, it's just him and George that are there. And George is, like, walking him through, like, oh, this is how the chord change should go. I wish that scene lasted a little longer because John is the third one in. And he goes up behind the drums and he's like, I've never been up here. (laughs) And like starts doing a little something. Exactly. And then Paul walks in and I think he was just like, oh, okay, I'm not going to, you know. But that was another cool moment. And you could see, even though Paul did get a little cold feet at the end, there was a lot of momentum once they got Billy totally involved and got back into like a real studio setting. It's no coincidence that George Martin was in the studio those portions more than he was at this tv soundstage i think even though he's not like commandeering or anything like that i think again that level of comfort just helped them get into a groove that much quicker whereas the other place was totally alien made all this other pressure harder to deal with i think i i agree when our last conversation, you mentioned like how George wasn't really there. And like you said, it might've had a lot to do with the, them. Maybe it was just like early in the process and really they wanted it to be like a live show. Hmm. But I think to your point, I guess as the songs are like really getting finalized, you hear George really nailing things down and being like, this part was better here. That part was better there. Change this. You're doing it too fast. Like you start seeing him doing a lot more production here. He probably knows, let them just get shit out of their system. But then he's like, okay, this is what we're recording. So let's, let's get our act in order. Right. So yeah. One goofing off part where they're either doing accents or there's also the um, really funny. And this is almost like out of um, Eastbound and Down. (laughs) Um, There's a scene with Danny McBride and Will Ferrell where they're trying to say something. It's on an outtake and they're trying to say something to each other without moving like their lips. And John and Paul basically sing two of us like that without like teeth. Yeah, the whole time. Yeah, they don't open (laughs) their mouth at all. And that's one of those. Yeah, those things where it's just like they just want to make each other laugh and they're total goofs. But then like not long after. Uh, George Martin's like, okay, well, let's let's do another one. How about Love Me Do again? You know what I mean? Yeah. 
speaking of MVPs, man, Billy Preston's keyboard playing here, just seeing him perform, two things that it made me realize. One is how, in retrospect, thinking about those songs, I'm like, man, these songs are so made by the keyboard playing, like how essential he is. And it's something you don't think about, you know, the guest player. And it really crystallized it in watching this documentary. But the second thing about it was just seeing him as like this unbelievably you know, I, I wanted to do it, Billy, maybe we'll do an episode on Billy Preston, by the way, because I know so little about him and just mm. seeing how incredibly talented he is, you know, where they are screwing up take after take after take. Like he's always on point every mm. single performance, you know, so it's really, really great stuff. Especially like uh, the electric piano break and Don't Let Me Down. Yeah. That right there. I mean, without that, that song would be really kind of flimsy. There's those great jams where Paul's on the grand piano yep. and you have Billy on the organ. I think he just put everyone at ease. Yeah. Really cool. Like when he's just playing, he's playing guitar, I yep. think at one point with uh, Paul while they're doing Get Back, I believe. I so yeah. Playing with that little, uh, uh, the, the, Styl- the stylophone. Yeah. And it's so That's- funny to hear him like screwing around with it. And then, like, then he's like doing chords with it. Like, you know, after like five minutes, he's, uh, yeah. he's like already proficient at it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, another MVP I think is uh, Heather McCartney. Oh yeah, she's like she, yeah, that's a blast. She was, a she was pretty adorable, yeah. and it's it's funny. Um, again, kind of like reflects like so well on like the character of these guys and stuff. But like the interaction with like her and Ringo when she like sneaks up and hits yeah. the snare and he freaks out is hilarious. And then later they're playing. And she's still playing the hi hat, and yeah. she's doing pretty good time. And they have the drum baffle set up in front. Yeah. And after they stop, Paul makes <laughs> yeah. a comment like, "Hey, you're a little busy over there on that." And it's like he can't see. Yeah. You and Rico just smiles at her, like, "Okay, we'll work on that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of fun. So, I mean, yeah, that and uh, you know John asking her about eating cats and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that whole thing was really charming, like you mentioned. And another thing I thought about it, just watching like just kind of these revelations you make, is I think that there's also a mythology that definitely like at the turn of the century, you know, there was that whole spare the rod, spoil the child kind of concept. Or when like literally you wrote all these books saying like, don't pick your kids up when they cry because you make them too soft. You know, like it's like that kind of mentality. But there's a, you know, I think there's still also a mythology that that's kind of like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you know, like the dads were like absentee fathers and didn't have any relationship with the kids until they were like 20 years old or something. And seeing them all, like to your point, interacting with her, they're all obviously like have very good paternal instincts, right? So that's a, that's a myth too, right? That like in the old days, you know, the dads didn't, didn't talk to their kids. Interestingly, like they probably were that change generationally. That was Linda McCartney's daughter with her previous husband Mm -hmm. paul obviously got on fabulously and adopted her and it's just cool to see that whole that whole little bit and uh, she also had a great reaction 
to one of Yoko's uh, vocalizations. <laughs> yes. She's like, gets all wide-eyed hearing this. And then literally, like, I think they're playing. It's the same session, obviously, yeah. or whatever. But They're just kind of jamming, and then she starts screaming yeah, the mic. She starts doing the yeah. same thing, to, and she's uh, sitting next to John. <laughs> yeah. And he, John yells out, Yoko Ono. <laughs> John's like, so, huh? Is that you, Yoko? <laughs> it's great. I mean... That was really cool. And like all the scenes when they go back into the control room and hear playback yeah. and are all like nodding along with the stuff. That's when you really get like that kind of adrenaline. But man, the... when they record Get Back, I mean, they're actually recorded a dozen times. Like I'm like, oh my God, I don't think I, do, I can listen to this again. It's driving me nuts. But I think once again, I think that's all intentional, right? Because they, they want to make it clear that it's not like they recorded it once and it was done. Like, you know, it's like yeah. the tedium of creation. Take 17. Aside from the like kind of weirdness of the rooftop concert just in execution like i said like they can't see anybody nobody can see them right i do like you mentioned i do really love getting people's reactions on the streets because yes. it really wouldn't have made much sense to to see that without any of that i mean it would have been a performance but it's not going to capture like what that meant at the time Let's go talk about that part, about the performance on the roof. I think you make a really interesting point, which I hadn't even thought about, but it's absolutely true. They have not performed since 66. Now here they are performing at 69, three years later. This would be a huge deal that the Beatles are playing again, right? I'm sure that at the time they were like the most famous people, maybe not all the famous musicians, the most famous people on earth possibly. And they are in this town. They're in London now, not in Liverpool anymore. And they're playing suddenly in the street so people can hear their music playing. And of course they start milling around. And I'm sure everybody who works in London works in that area knows that that's where the Beatles are, right? They probably know who it is, but this really weird interaction performing on the rooftop so people can hear them, but can't see them. Very weird. But then like you mentioned, the other weird thing about it is to think about Paul and not only Paul, they were nervous basically about playing in front of people again. And they were even had bad vibes when they had recorded the hey jude single right with all these people around so they're like yeah you know we have to like work out the kinks and stuff to, to play live again which i find so weird when you consider yes of course they haven't rec they haven't played live in three years they've been mostly a studio band for that period of time but man they were playing like thousands and thousands and literally thousands of hours right they played through their emergence through their entire first three four years of their career they were touring non-stop right so the idea that yeah. they're suddenly now embarrassed like shy about getting in front of audiences i'm like well how did this happen like it's not hasn't been that long you know no and it's weird i think paul actually touches on that at one point he says you know we're playing better than we ever right. have yep and it is one of those things where it seemed like they're kind of gun shy about being in front of people or in in an uncontrolled setting yep. which makes sense you know on, on a level and it's kind of weird that it happened that what they did end up doing is something that keeps them at more than arm's length from you know they can't get jitters from the crowd you can't see anybody yeah still really cool like after they kind of went through the first round that second round of songs up there they really picked up yeah the whole kind of uh police response was kind of funny as well yes that was another funny thing yep i mean you take a look at the uh the cops that you know wanted to shut the thing down <laughs> they were younger than 
George Harrison was at the time. They had to have been, you know. And it's like Mal Evans, again, coming through in the clutch. Um, but basically, like, stalling. And, you know, oh, yeah, we they're just trying to record. They can maybe turn off the PA. I'll go up and see if they can turn off the PA. And just probably walking, like, baby steps up the stairs and, like, really just slow walking everything. You know, it's very easy to say, yeah, the Beatles were very popular at the time. but First of all, how many people, like if you were a young man and your sister grew up loving the Beatles and idolizing the Beatles and putting posters up in your wall, like if you had that experience when you were younger, would you take these guys seriously? I would not. You know, my sister would like had Duran Duran posters on the wall. And I thought Duran Duran was garbage. I do like Duran Duran, by the way, now. But it, yeah. took, me, it took me decades before I could appreciate them because I was like, that's just that, that stuff that little girls listen to, right? And uh, so how many of these guys had that opinion? And that's on the one side of it, like, do you take them seriously or not? On the other side of it is people who probably outright hate them because remember, they called them like girls for having long hair and their hair's longer than ever in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you would say they were ever embraced um, by the British establishment per right. se. I mean- I think it was perfunctory when they got offered like the OMBE or, you know what I mean? Like knighthood and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, at the time, no, it was like, they were, they were really tabloid fodder. And like the UK tabloids are notoriously insane because there's not that many people. (laughs) Yeah. There wasn't that people at that level of fame at that point. Exactly. There. Right. Yeah, I mean, just look what uh, Amy Winehouse had to endure. Oh, my God. That's a, by the way, just a call out here for anybody who's listening to this. Check out the Amy documentary, which is available on Hulu, I believe, or maybe on Amazon Prime. I'm one of those. Used to be on Prime. Now I think it's on Hulu, but it's just called Amy. It is an incredible documentary that really highly recommend it and will make you respect her a lot more and will also make you think like the tabloid media pretty much murdered her. So, yeah, I've held off on watching that because I really think it would be almost too depressing oh, it, but... I, I would if you haven't seen it i can't recommend it more highly the reason i would recommend it is not because of how depressing things become over time but you see you know as a parallel to this documentary a incredible amount of, of documentary footage you see her when she's 16 years old or whatever being recorded by her dad and by her friends they're recording her from day one and you see her 16 years old 17 years old performing in front of these clubs these kind of jazzy songs she's performing and they put the lyrics the filmmaker puts the lyrics on the screen while she's singing and you're like man this girl was an incredible lyricist an incredible vocalist too i mean first of all i wasn't i liked that one album not a huge amy winehouse fan that documentary made me think of her as like a true genius who unfortunately another that's way too soon she only got two albums right frank and back to black yeah that's that's it yeah. That's insane. But yeah, the British tabloids suck. Um, yeah, long and short of it, right? They do the rooftop concert. I liked it when they finally, so they slow walk them. They're stalling, stalling, stalling. Oh my God, they're t- <laughs> And they finally get up to the roof. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, like maybe I'm just like projecting a little bit, but it seemed it lit a charge under him a little bit more. I think Paul definitely looks He's back. He's definitely looking like, oh, this is going to come to an end. <laughs> And he ad-libs a couple things, like, they're going to take me away and all this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, like, one of the best things is um, when George Harrison, one of the excuses is, oh, we'll turn down, like, the PA speakers because they're just trying to record. So they do that a little bit. And then George sees the cops up on the roof finally and goes and turns his amp back up. Yeah. So that that was a cool moment. I don't know, very well done. 
documentary overall. Um, if you like the Beatles, definitely check it out. It's long. It's a Peter Jackson thing. It really gives like a good gives more context of one the creative process, and then two like the personalities of the Beatles and their dynamic. And you can kind of like see why the band was coming to an end. Yep. And at the same time, for the most part, there's so much mutual respect among them. You can tell they're just pretty genuine people. Yep. When it comes down to it. It was my real takeaway. And that makes sense. It's not like there's any real definition of stardom on the level that they they got to. There's no template, really. And it's kind of encouraging, at least, that they didn't just immediately turn into turn, turn into like these diva monsters. First of all, yeah, absolutely. This is incredibly long, by the way. It took me over a week to get through all of it. But I'd say if you're even a mildly a fan of the Beatles, you could break this up any way you want to. You can watch it an hour at a time. You can watch it all the way through. I think it's very rewarding regardless of how you break it up. I think everything you said is absolutely right. I'm always in favor of a documentary, whether it is the Amy documentary, by the way, which does this to some extent as well, or something like this, which really recontextualizes or kind of breaks the mythology of history. I think that this is a kind of like a, a curse we have as people that we have to invent stories that are convenient. And then we have to kind of fit everybody into this existing narrative. And I like whenever you watch a documentary, whether it reinforces what you already believe or contradicts what you believe either way, when it kind of shows you a much more complex storyline. And I really like this. It kind of takes you into their creative process, which I think is interesting for any creative process. Uh, an exploration of creative process. But like you said, having all these hours is not detrimental at all. You will really feel after watching this that you know them in some way. You kind of know John Lennon, you know Paul. It's like someone you've met casually after you watch this documentary, which is quite an achievement to get to achieve that. So I, I thought that was really well done. And I think it's worth the length and the investment of time. I think you need that time to kind of have that intimacy with them. And the whole mythology, the whole mythology of some hit makers, just great. Bob Dylan, just write songs and they're all great and it's just like mm, not necessarily right so there's more it's more yeah. complicated than that and there's and it takes a village right to, to to make a pop song in a way right so yeah 